Jean Vanier tells this haunting story. Later in life, he went on to found a, a community of um, residences for those with mental handicaps and disabilities that, that spans the world. But before that, he had this really formative and yet haunting experience. He went to visit the children's ward of a mental hospital. And he said in his own words, when he walked onto that floor, he realized that it was a warehouse of human misery. He said hundreds of children with severe disabilities were lying, neglected on their cots. There was a deadly silence. Not one of them was crying when they realized that nobody cares, that nobody will answer them. These children no longer cried. It takes too much energy. We cry out, he says, when there's hope that somebody will hear us. Does anybody care? I think that's the, the question that haunts this story, and it, it really is the question that haunts the Gospels, and maybe the question that haunts each of our own lives. Does anybody really care about me? Does anybody care? I know you, you just read Matthew 9, and I think that that's the question that's on every lip in Matthew 9. If you pick up in verse 18, it starts with this father. And we, we, don't, we don't know the father well, but we can imagine his face. His eyes are probably swollen and puffy. He comes to Jesus and he just stumbles down at Jesus' feet and he wipes his nose with the sleeve of his tunic and it's all he can do to get out the words, my daughter has just died. My daughter's died. He says, become, put your hand on her. Put your hand on her and she'll live. One of my good friends who's a minister in um, Arizona had this beautiful baby girl a few months ago, he and his wife. But shortly before the delivery, the doctors called him one day. He was at work, actually, at the church building, and he gets this call from the doctor, this, man, I guess that most dreaded phone call. And he says, some of our tests don't look right. I think that you and your wife need to come down here and have a conversation with us. So he goes and gets his wife from work. She's a teacher, and they begin that long drive to the doctor. And they get there, and the doctor sits him down and says, you know, I hate to, to tell you this, but your daughter has a very rare condition, and she's gonna go full term inside your womb, but as soon as she's born and she's separated from you, Mom, she's not gonna last long. And so sure enough, they have this beautiful baby girl, and they hold her against their chest, and they kiss her, and they take pictures with her, and after a few hours, she's gone. And I think about him. I cannot help but think about him now when I read this story of this dad who stumbles up to Jesus and says, my daughter has just died. Do you care, Jesus? And Jesus rises to his feet and he begins to make his way towards the girl who's still laying in her bed. And when he gets there, he'll bring her back. Right. On his way there, this woman who has been sick for 12 years interrupts the journey. You remember her? 
12 years she's been sick, so sick that when Jesus is passing by, she can't walk towards him. She has to crawl towards him. That's the best she can do. And you can imagine she is crawling through this crowd, the text tells us, and people are probably stepping on her fingers. They're probably tripping over her and cursing her for being in the way. What are you doing down here on the ground? Get out of the way. And she just keeps crawling towards Jesus, wondering if he cares. I knew this woman, and when I read about her that I'm reminded of, she was the wife to an elder at the church my dad preached at for 15 years. And years before, they had, they had spent their whole lives in this town where we were living at the time. And many years ago, he was the homecoming king and she the homecoming queen at that high school, there in DeSoto High School. And she was this beautiful young woman and she had these three wonderful boys. One of those boys was a good friend of mine, just a wonderful family. But at some point, the first thing that people noticed was that she just stopped smiling. You know, she had been this really happy person, full of life, and she just stopped smiling. And then she started slowly just not coming around much anymore. Eventually, we just kind of stopped seeing her. I remember going to mow the lawn one day, and she couldn't get out of bed to come say hello to me. And I remember as a kid, I didn't really understand what was going on, and so I called my dad recently to ask him about it, and he said, you know, none of us really knew what was going on. We didn't know whether to call it bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or some type of psychosis. We didn't, we didn't know what was going on. Her husband was as faithful as he could be. He would come to elders meetings sometimes. My dad would tell me it later and he would have these bruises down the side of his face. And he'd come in and he'd just say, she had a bad day, she had a bad day. I'll never forget the last time that I saw her, she did come to church, it was unexpected and she came and she sat right there on the left and I'll never remember sitting behind her just a little bit. She was as still as a statue the whole service with tears just streaming down her face. And I think about her when I read about this woman who crawls towards Jesus because it's the best that she can do, thinking if I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. And she does, and Jesus turns to her and he smiles and he says, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. Next on the scene, if you're following along in Matthew 9, are two blind men who are trying their best to follow Jesus, but because they cannot see him, that's really hard. So the best they can do, and the text points this out, is to shout, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, because they can't see him. Lately, I've been really struggling with these lines from Ta-Nehisi Coates' book. He, he writes about growing up in faith in a church, faithful family, but he loses his faith along the way because life's just too hard. And one of the really hard experiences is the death of a really close friend. And the friend is murdered, he's a, he's a 25 year old. So Ta-Nehisi goes to his funeral and his friend was a deacon at the church where the funeral is and the preacher gets up and he's telling everybody to, to have faith and to lay their burdens down at the feet of the cross. And he calls everybody together for prayer. He says, let's bow and pray. And when all those heads go down, Ta-Nehisi cannot bring himself to lower his head because he looks out around at everybody 
bowing their heads, and he says, when those assembled mourners bowed their heads in prayer, I was divided from them because I believed the void would not answer back. And the young man who was murdered, his mom's there on the front row, and she turns and she sees Ta-Nehisi Coates with his, his 13-year-old son who he's brought along to the funeral. She looks down at the boy and she says, boy, don't let this change you. You gotta live with courage in this world. And Ta-Nehisi said, well, I've tried to say the same thing to you, son, and if I have not said it with the same direction and clarity, I confess it's because I am afraid and I have no God to hold me up. I think about him when I read about these blind men who cannot see the Jesus they want more than anything in the world to see and follow. And so they just shout out, have mercy on us, son of David. Do you care? Because we are not sure you do. Remember what happens? He touches their eyes. Jesus does. And he says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And they see. And then last in the passage, it's this man who is enslaved by a demon. He is possessed. He is so out of control that he can't even bring himself to speak. He cannot move his lips with any control. At the barbershop the other day, um, I saw this mutual confession unfold right there in the barber's chair, okay? Um, The barber had the man lathered up with shaving cream and he had one of those straight razors because I still go to a barber like that, even though I only have to shave like every three weeks. It's just... (laughs) Really cool. They just kind of rub it over my skin. But right there in the swivel chair, this man's got lathered up with shaving cream. And the barber says to him, he says, "Uh, you know, I haven't gambled in two weeks. I haven't gambled in two weeks. And the man in the chair says, you know, you've, you've been telling me about that for a while. I've never told you that I've actually been addicted to gambling for 13 years, he says. 13 years. I'll remember the day it started. And I have lost thousands of dollars. Once I start and I get a little bit behind, I just feel like I have to keep going and try to win it back. And inevitably, I just keep losing. Said my wife's almost left me a couple times now. And the barber who's wiping that blade on his pants says, you know, I know what you mean. My wife's pregnant and just the other day I lost the money we'd set aside for the nursery and I had to tell her about it. I have never seen somebody so hurt. And they both just shake their heads because they know what it's like to be totally out of control. And I think about them when this man in his own way, this man who's controlled by this demon comes to Jesus, and I think really in his own way, he's, he's asking that question that everybody else in the chapter is asking, and maybe that all of us are asking, does anybody care? Jesus, do you care? Jesus drives the demon out, and the man begins to speak, which he has not done for years, and the text says that never before, the people say, has anything like this been seen in Israel. So it's been a long day for Jesus now. 
He keeps on walking from town to town, we see, and everywhere he goes, he sees all of these people, the same people that you see every day, who are hurting and wondering, does anybody care? And he says, the text says, he had compassion on them. Literally, he had a stirring in his gut. His gut was moved for him. Because as he says, they're harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. It's that last phrase that should jump off the page. You you don't have to be a farmer to make sense of that, sheep without a shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, God laments that his people, Israel, that their shepherds aren't taking care of them. And he says, meanwhile, while you shepherds are off taking care of yourself, my sheep have become food for all the wild animals, he says. And nobody seems to care or even notice. But Jesus in Matthew 9 is here and he cares. He's the caregiver. He's the caretaker. He's taking care of everybody that comes his way. This grieving father, this sick woman, these blind men, this man who is totally out of control. He's like the psalmist in Psalm 72, 12, who will deliver the needy who cry out, those who have nobody else to help them. Turns out, Jesus cares. I reckon that's what each of us really want to know. You know, deep down, I think most of us have this fear, deep down, buried inside, that when we most need help, nobody will hear us crying or nobody will care when we do. Uh, I remember those commercials. They're probably 25 years old now of the woman, elderly woman, who's laying on the floor. And what does she cry out? I've fallen and I can't get up. Do you remember a lot of other commercials from 25 years ago? No, but that one stuck. I've fallen and I can't get up. For some of you, so this is the good news in Matthew 9. Jesus is listening and he cares. Jesus is on the scene, he's listening, and he cares. And for the rest of you, there is a different kind of good news in Matthew 9. It's like the kind of good news that comes in the mailbox. It's got fancy, your name is, is written in really fancy gold writing, your address, and you open it up and it's an invitation. And I think that's the kind of good news that's here in Matthew 9. Remember that time, it, I think y'all occasionally read your Bible. Do you remember that time where uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000? Anybody remember that? He uses a couple fish and a couple loaves. Do you, do you remember what he says to the disciples just before all the magic starts to happen? Do you remember? The disciples come to him and they say, well, let's send all these people away to their own homes to, to go get some food on their own because we don't have anything to feed them. And Jesus says, do you remember this? He says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Remember that? It had to be startling. Uh, Jesus, who who are you talking about? Me? We don't have the resources to feed them. We're not qualified to feed all these people. 
But we know how the story ends and turns out Jesus is more than qualified. He's got more than enough resources to make it happen. But for some reason that only Jesus knows, he still wants the disciples to be part of taking care of the sheep. He says, they don't need to go away. You feed them. I think that's the invitation of Matthew 9 right there at the end. Jesus sees this suffering world around him, and he sees it like Moses sees Israel in Numbers 27. Just before Moses dies, he is lamenting because he's afraid that Israel now has nobody to lead them. And he says, they're going to be like sheep without a shepherd. And God says, I hear you, Moses, so why don't you appoint someone, Joshua, to take over and take care of the sheep. It's this transition of leadership, of responsibility. I think that's what Jesus is doing the same thing here. I think that's what he's up to. He looks out at the suffering world all around him. So many people who are sheep, who don't know their shepherd, and that sight prompts him to say those really famous words, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are really few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out laborers into his harvest fields. And then in the very next verse in Matthew 10, he turns to his disciples and we realize what he's just said is not just an observation. It's not just a request about prayer. It is an invitation to participate because he turns to them in Matthew 10 and he sends them out in effect saying, I want you to go care. Tom Long tells this story. He was a young preacher and he was preaching in this small church in Ohio. And during their Sunday morning service, they were singing the song, Fairest Lord Jesus. You know that song? And just as they were in the chorus of Fairest Lord Jesus, across town at the First Baptist Church, the boiler exploded on the second floor. And there was a Sunday school class beneath the boiler and there was a father, 30 years old, and four teenagers in that room beneath the boiler and they were killed at church. And so it really rocked this little town in Ohio. So the next Sunday, Tom is walking with the members of his church and they're just kind of talking about how unbelievable and tragic it is that this happened and that it happened at a church building. And they're just kind of overcome by this. And Tom says, well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm really glad I don't have to make sense of that. I'm so glad I'm not the pastor of that church. And one of the members walking with him just looks at him, just stony-eyed and says, you are the pastor of that church. We all are. We all have to make sense of this. Uh, I think that's what Jesus is saying here that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. It's about more than just kind of evangelism, which is the way we've typically thought about it. And I think that's part of it, but really it's bigger than that. It is this invitation to become a minister to the world, a shepherd to all those lost sheep out there. And sin and evangelism are part of that, but any minister will tell you that sin and suffering are two sides of the same coin. Or to use the metaphor here, they grow in the same harvest field. And Jesus is concerned about both. And the good news for those who are sinful and suffering is that Jesus cares. He still notices. He's listening. But the good news for those of us who sin but have been cleansed of our sin, 
The good news of those, for those of us who suffer, but suffer alongside a community that lifts us up close to the Father. The good news for us who God has called his royal priesthood is this invitation to go and care for the world like Jesus does. To notice them and care. They don't need to go home, Jesus says. You give them something to eat. I'll, I'll finish with this story. I'm, I'm part of this group of ministers who meet twice a year to try to become better ministers. And so some of you are really glad that I'm going. And um, I'll never forget at the first session, Randy Harris, who, who draws this group together, uh, he began with this story. The first, this is the first thing he did. First time we gather, he started with this story of someone he knew who had, had really gone through a hard time. And he had made some bad decisions. He had wrecked some relationships. And top, on top of that, he was sick. He, he, was, he was dying. And he finds himself at his lowest moment, just actually just overcome by grief. And he is laying on the bathroom floor, just sobbing, just sobbing. Okay, unable to even pull himself up because he is oh, so overcome by sadness. And Randy stopped the story right there and he said, I want you to imagine you're that man. And maybe you could all, could all do this too. I want you to imagine you're that person huddled up on the bathroom floor, just overcome by grief. And then he said, who is it you would most want to see coming through the bathroom door at that moment? Yeah. Who is that person who couldn't fix everything maybe, but you know, they would care. They would care. And then he said, I want you to become that person. The person that others want to see walking through the door when they can't pull themselves up. I want you to become that person. Because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers sadly are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send out laborers into his harvest field. Will I have? And as I look around, I think the Lord has chosen well in you. Will you stand and sing with me? I'll be down front and would love to receive you in prayer. We'll have shepherds in the back. If you'd like to give your life to Jesus in baptism, I'd love to talk with you about that this morning. Let's sing together. There is an endless song echoes in my soul. I hear the music.